Hello and welcome to Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast with a new episode released every single day. I'm Paul Stevenson. Thanks as always for hitting play. Now, this week's episode is volume six of the Great Rock Stories series. The first five have all been really well received, and it's a great way for especially new listeners to get a snapshot of what Vintage Rock Pod is all about. I've had so many great guests on the show over the last, what, nearly three years now, and I know not everyone listening right now has probably checked out every single one, and that's okay. So this is a nice way to not only highlight the older interviews, but also maybe open some eyes or ears to a new audience too. Now, if you're not listening to this on the Vintage Rock Pod channel, then please do go to Vintage Rock Pod and give us a follow, subscribe or like or whatever it's called on your podcast app because I release a new episode every single day and you can only get all those episodes on the Vintage Rock Pod feed. So please do check it out and get all the brilliant classic rock content daily. So on this episode, we're going to dive back to episodes 38 to 43. That was back in September and October of 2021. I've picked out some fun stories from those interviews, talking about some big hits, time in a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame group, working with Rod Stewart, crazy publicity stunt, recording in a Beatles home, and much more. But we're going to start with episode 43 and legendary drummer Carmine Apice, one of my favourite guests, so much so that I've had him on Vintage Rock Pod twice over the years, and I still haven't got to the bottom of all his stories. Anyway, we're going to start by hearing him talk about his time in Vanilla Fudge and the song that made them a household name. Their version of the song, You Keep Me Hanging On. What was it about that sound and that, that you guys loved so much then? And what was the process that you went through when you're in recording some of these songs? Well, it, it, all, it really started from the Rascals, you know. The Rascals were a New York band that got really famous and, and they did some duo with songs like Midnight Hour and Mustang Sally and stuff like that. And then uh, there's a fad that was going around in Long Island with uh, Leslie West was in a group called the, the Vagrants. And Billy Joel was in a group called the Hassles. And we used to all do rearrangements. That was the fad in Long Island. And the Vagrants were the biggest. They used to draw 2,000 people to my manager's club. You know? mm-hmm. And that's what, uh, when the Pigeons asked me to join them, that's what they wanted to do, this new fad music. that All the arrangements were original. Mm-hmm. but yeah. the songs were famous songs and we would redo all the songs and like rearrange them totally. Yeah. What our concept was to match the music and the emotion of the lyrics together. Like you keep me hanging on and listening was set me free. Why don't you be? It was like a happy song, but really yeah. not happy lyrics. <laughs> and uh, so we married the, the emotional music to the emotional lyric with emotional vocals. And that's what happened there. You know, it was great. Between that and the fact that we had four voices yeah. and we picked the, the correct songs and we married the songs to the music. Eleanor Rigby, I mean, the Beatles did it amazing with the quartet, but we took it and put it into an eerie setting, almost like a, an eerie soundtrack to the mm-hmm. lyrics. Yeah. Uh, would you keep hanging on? We went in, recorded, and one take mono, everything once. I always say that seven minutes have changed my life. And while I had him on, I had to ask him about joining Rod Stewart in the 80s. Carmine was part of Rod's band and got co-writer credits on many of his big hits at that time, including Do You Think I'm Sexy? So here he is talking about his time with Rod. It was uh, by accident. One day I'm walking in L.A. after all that, and uh, I ran into my friend Sandy Gennaro, drummer. I said, hey, Sammy, how are you doing? And he said, good. I said, what are you doing? He goes, I just auditioned for Rod. I didn't make it. You should call him. 
I said, really? Who'd you call? So he showed me the guy's name, Pete Buckland. I said, oh, Pete, we did 35 gigs with faces and cactus. We used to wreck hotel rooms and abuse women and did everything. <laughs> wreck cars and did everything together. And Pete was at the helm of it all. So I said, oh, give me the number. So I called Pete and I said, hey, Pete, it's Carmine Peace. What's the deal? You, Rod's looking for a drummer. You don't call me? And he says, oh, you're always busy. I said, well, I'm not busy now. I'd love to play with Rod. Well, you call Rod. He's in England. So he called Rod. And Rod told him, have Carmine go to my house. The band is there. Have him me check it out so it was almost like have come i check the band out see if he likes it i said whoa that's pretty that's a switch and i said i know rod now you know this was i've known rod since 68 and this is like uh, almost 10 years later you know and we did a lot of gigs together with cactus and face as well so i went to the house i figured well i'm going to rod stewart so i'm going to bring a good cost i had a pantera at the time which is now in england a guy bought it in england and he's redoing this pantera totally restoring it for car shows nice. and since i had that car for 40 years he's going to call it the car the peace pantera <laughs> and i'm going to tell him about all the people that wrote in it like ozzy <laughs> and Rod, Rod Stewart and prince and all these different oh, people wow. jeff beck you know anyway so I, I drove the pantera to rod's house i pull up to these gigantic gates i said whoa i didn't know rod was this successful <laughs> you know and i pull in and then i go in and i see Phil Chen, I go, hey, I didn't know you were in the band. And I, I meet Jim Cregan. He was in the band. I met him in England. And so so we had a play. It sounded good. And, and also, yeah, I had to had have this in my head as soon as I went in there. I saw the mansion. I saw, you know, Porsches and Lamborghinis <laughs> and all these cars. And I said, I want to play here. I want to play <laughs> with this band. You know? <laughs> The brilliant Carmine apiece there. So many crazy stories like a fight with Black Sabbath and touring the US with Led Zeppelin as their support act and all the stuff around that. Being fired from Ozzy's band in the 80s by Sharon Osbourne and the crazy stuff she did to force him out and so much more. Check it out in full on episode 43. It's a great one. Right, next up, let's hear about a classic rock anthem, Slow Ride. It's still a favourite, what, nearly 50 years on. It still gets played on classic rock radio. It's a real fan's favourite. I spoke with Foghat legend, another drummer, Roger Earl, on episode 38. And here we talk about the song. Um, you're talking about the success in America then. I mean, what was it, eight gold albums, a platinum album, a double platinum album? Um, it was just phenomenal, the success you had over there. The, the big one, that the, well, your first one that went platinum was Fall for the City. And we'd like to touch on that one from 1975. And we've got to talk about the, the big single that came off that album as well. We like to hear about these big hits and things like that now. Um, some people I speak to tell me that the big hits, they, they knew it was going to be a hit from the second they wrote it. Some people tell me it was an album filler. They didn't expect it to go as big as it did. So Slow Ride, I mean, the first time you heard it, played, it recorded it what was your feelings about the song yeah it was uh the first time we recorded it rod price and i who was our lead and side guitar player at the time owned a house down here on long island and we'd had we, we were like the old couple um we'd uh, we'd soundproof the basement and nick jameson had just joined the band on bass and the first song we started we started a lot of our songs came from just jamming you know i'd just start playing and everybody join in or vice versa and um, basically, so ride comes from a it's a John Lee Hooker rip. Instead of playing it like a shuffle, it's played like in a straight four four, bad at bad you know, uh, instead of like a shuffle. So um, we actually did the whole arrangement to the song, you know, like the 
drum and bass breakdown in the middle. And, uh, and after we've been doing this, Dave said, uh, I think I've got some words that will fit to that. And that's how it happened. Nick Jameson and I were finishing mixing the Fall for the City album. Nick did all the mixing. I'd, I'd bring in tea and biscuits. Uh, <laughs> and we finished mixing it, and the B, and the B side was uh, Save Your Loving. That was off the same album. And uh, we took it back down to uh, Bearsville Records and played it for the uh, head honcho there, Paul Fishkin. And he said, because it was Nick and I decided it was a single, going back to what you asked. It was, yeah. Actually, it was the first time that I ever thought of, of a single. And Paul said, well, that can't be a single. It's nearly eight minutes long. We said, to you, uh, <laughs> not to you, to Paul. And he said, well, you, you can't put a seven-minute song out. And we said, yes, we can. We can do whatever we want. <laughs> so <laughs> it did go out initially as a seven-minute song. But then reality struck home and they and the record the radio stations were editing it themselves so we figured it'd be better if we just got nick jameson to edit it and he brought it down to about four minutes but uh yeah that was um john lee hooker riff yeah it was a big hit for us an incredible longevity behind it as well because it stuck around forever and it's got so many different generations that know it from different things i mean i've got an eight-year-old son who, who he's got his own little spotify account and he's always listening to all these weird and random things he had um, he hooks up to the car while we're driving he had a traffic song on i'm thinking that's 60s where's he got this from and then slow ride came on and he sat there humming away to it and i'm thinking where was it eight-year-old it's just incredible that song just seems to well, I, bridge all the generations you know i think um you know the late 60s maybe i'm biased because that was like you know when i really started you know doing learning my craft learning my trade that like you know doing it it was uh, it was a great time to be involved in music um maybe we're biased but uh i was glad i was born when i was born you know what i'm saying i used to go to the marquee thursday nights to, to see uh who was that? Well, the Stones would play there, the Yardbirds, of course. Yeah, it was a great time. Uh, actually, I remember one time Mick spilled a beer on me. <laughs> a brush with greatness. Um Pie Island, uh, he turned around and bumped into me and spilled his beer on me. And he said, oh, sorry, mate. I said, that's okay. Since <laughs> <laughs> so it was you. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. I, I love the Stones. They're a great band. Absolutely. Absolutely fantastic. Roger Earl there. Again, another top interview. He tells a great story about auditioning for Jimi Hendrix. And you can hear that on the full interview on episode 38. Check it out now. Next up, let's hear from a Rock and Roll Hall of Famer now, Dave Mason. He achieved success originally in the band Traffic, along with Steve Winwood and Jim Capaldi, and was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with them as well. But then he found solo success in North America in the years that followed that too. Now in this clip, we're going to hear us chat about the Traffic days and the early years. Traffic, I mean, you were just a teenager when the band got together and... You're writing big hits, Hole in My Shoe and Feeling All Right and that sort of stuff. I mean, that's that's pretty incredible, really, isn't it, for anybody? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I just was uh, the right place, the right time, whatever. I mean, it was just fortuitous that uh, Jim and I got met up with Winwood. And um, that band just happened just out of basically just, you know, guys just hanging out, listening to music a lot um, when we could. And it just developed into traffic. So how did all that happen then? How did you guys meet? Because the, the end of the 60s in the UK was 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 rocking time, wasn't it? You think of the bands that were coming through at the time and the music that was being played. So how did you all get together? 
Um, we just uh, we met in a place called the Elbow Room in Birmingham, basically, an after-hours club. A lot of bands would go there, but that's how we met. Just developed from there, and like I said, just four guys hanging out. Four young guys hanging out, indeed. And then, like we said, I think one of the first songs that you wrote was "Hole in My Shoe," which was a big hit over here in the UK. Got to number two, didn't it? Yes, yes, it did. It got to number two. Engelbert Humperdinck kept me from number one, <laughs> and uh, it was the first song I'd ever written. It was what was I nineteen? Very um, naive in a way. It was a song of the times, and I was playing sitar. That influence was coming into music a lot. I don't know if it was exactly what everybody wanted to play, but the fact of the matter was it was a hit record. So Absolutely. It drew everybody's attention to what Traffic was doing otherwise. I mean, there's was, was very varied taste in that band, which was probably to me its strength, but it's what uh, pulled it apart in the end. Yeah, and you mentioned there, I mean, pulling it apart. You left, didn't you, after the, the first album first came out, Mr. Fantasy, which was a big hit again. I mean, top 20 in the UK, the album itself, it was a hit yeah, in America I, as well. Yeah, I left. I left my, my, I left because I was just so y- too young. So young, and the success was, um, just for me, it was, um, I'm, I'm from Worcester. Yeah. I'm just, you know, running around in farmland. so it was all a little bit too much for me at the time at that age um and yeah i laughed you did rejoin didn't you in time for the the second album and you contributed a whole host of songs and again the big song feeling all right was on there and that's the one that kind of everyone remembers it was a big hit and and joe cocker's obviously since taken it on and things like that but can you remember much about the, the the sessions or the writing of feeling all right uh well i had written that song during the period of time that i was not um, with traffic, actually wrote it in a uh, wrote it on an island called Hydra in Greece. It's just a uh, you know it's a unrequited love song, basically. <laughs> and what did you make of Joe Cocker? I mean, did you get a chance to perform with Joe Cocker when he did it? Oh yeah, sure. I've done it a few times with Joe. Yeah, did it a couple of times with John Belushi doing Joe. <laughs> Was that more fun? Uh, with Belushi. Of course. (laughs) That's another brilliant interview to check out. He tells a great story of his friendship with Jimi Hendrix and how he came to play on the studio recordings of Jimi's big hits all along the Watchtower and Crosstown Traffic. Give a listen to the interview in full on episode 42 of Vintage Rock Pod. Now, since we've done a bit of 60s and 70s chat, let's bounce into the 80s with British favourites Marillion. They hit big in the 80s with the album Misplaced Childhood and the conquering single Kaylee. Now, I spoke with the band's guitarist, Steve Rothery, on episode 41, and we talked about that success and how the band dealt with their charismatic lead singer, Fish, leaving the group. Misplaced Childhood, which went on to become a UK number one album. I mean, that's phenomenal. It also went big around the world as well. You got some big hits off that and you were charting around the, the place. I mean, we talked about being young and, and wanting to become professional musicians. But at this point, you, your dreams are coming true. I mean, like I said, Top of the Pops, hit records, playing the world, supporting Queen in front of over 150,000 people. I mean, yeah. wow, as someone that could only dream of that, how does that feel at that time? Incredibly surreal. Uh, I remember we did a gig in in uh, France and we flew back by Learjet to do Top of the Pops because Kaylee had gone back up, climbed higher in the charts. And yeah, you just, nothing prepares you for that really. You know, you kind of, you feel like you're in Duran Duran or something. Um, Of course, you know, it's not really what we're about, so it didn't, didn't last, but 
having said that, I think the impact that Kaylee made and then Misplaced Childhood made is probably one of the reasons that uh, the band's still going because when you do get that mainstream exposure, it's, it stays with people for a long time. Absolutely. And more mainstream exposures are always going to follow, like uh, clutching at straws, sorry, reach number two, another big hit on there as well, Incommunicado. Uh, And then the parting of the ways with Fish as well during the work on the next album. What was your thoughts amongst the band, yourself and and the other members at that point when Fish left? Um, Well, I think we just wanted to carry on. We we had a lot of confidence in the music that we'd we'd written. Uh, There was some very strong musical ideas that surfaced on um, Season's End and Holiday's Need. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was no question of stopping. We just thought we'd, we'd have to find someone, you know, obviously you can't just replace someone like Fish. He was too important part of the band. But just to try and find someone you can have a, a strong musical chemistry with and who understood the sort of thing that you were trying to do. You know, we auditioned about, I don't know, 50 people, Um and they were either kind of like wanting to be fish or, or or they were just from a more straightforward kind of rock area, so just not at all suitable. Um, but when we heard Steve Hogarth's um, tape of a couple of How We Live songs, you know, we thought immediately, uh, oh, here's someone working in a, in a similar kind of area musically, but with a really interesting uh, and uh, distinctive voice. So you say they're hearing Steve's um, audition tape. I mean... How did that come about? Did he hear that you were looking for, well, he obviously knew that you were looking for a lead singer. Was he just getting in touch and putting his, himself out there? No, it was actually his uh, his publisher who sent the uh, the tape to uh, John Arneson, our manager. Uh, and John played it and, and thought it was interesting. So he, he uh, brought it up to us. Um, and yeah, we were very excited to meet, meet Steve and we, we kind of got him down. Um, and it went incredibly well. Um, but he didn't jump at the chance. Um, he'd, he'd, uh, he was just about to turn his back on the music business and be a milkman, I think, or postman. Um, <laughs> but he'd also just had the offer to, because he just played on a, an, an album piano and an album by the there. And, and he'd uh, had just had an offer to go and play keyboards with him on tour, which he was thinking about. So, um, yeah, it, it took him a few days to decide, but... Um, Fortunately for all of us, he uh, he made the wise choice. Absolutely. A good decision in the end. And the band just kept excelling from there. The next three albums with Steve all went top 10 as well. And the famed Marillion fans, you've got such a strong and loyal fan base. They're all still enjoying what you're putting out and creating as a band. I mean, that must have felt good knowing that obviously such a big character had left the band and Steve had come in and the fans are still behind you and supporting everything you do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have the best fan base of any band in the world. Um you know, obviously, when you have a major change like that, you you do have to rebuild the trust to a certain amount. But I think we did that with Season's End. Uh, and the response live was always fantastic with Steve for that, the, the first tour. Um, yeah, and we kind of, we, we proved... To our, to our audience that it was this was still something special. Steve Rothery from Marillion there. The full interview is on episode 41.
Now, next up, we're going to hear from another Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, this time Bev Bevan. He was inducted into the Rock Hall with the band ELO, but he also worked with Black Sabbath, and before all that was with The Move, who had some big hits in the UK in the 60s, including number one single Blackberry Way, and their track Flowers in the Rain was the first ever song played on Radio 1 as well. Now I'm going to play you a couple of clips from that interview. In the first one, he talks about the crazy publicity stunts the band used to get up to when they were in the move and you mentioned the manager there i mean tony secundo he was he was one for for the extraordinary wasn't he He liked his publicity stunts didn't he and uh one of the famous story of you having to give up all the royalties to flowers in the rain because of a stunt that he pulled off yeah he managed to upset harold wilson the um the prime minister, <laughs> the prime minister. <laughs> uh by issuing a postcard that um was obviously libelous and it went it, it went to court and we lost the case unsurprisingly <laughs> and to this day we've never had any royalties for flowers in the rain uh, or the b-side here we go around the lemon tree and and most unfairly is that my still good friend i, li- I like to add uh, roy wood he wrote both those songs and he's never had any songwriting royalties which is very unfair and was that something that, that you guys as the band enjoyed doing these kind of crazy publicity stunts? Because I think at one one point you, you signed a, your contract on the back of a, a topless model as well and all that sort of crazy stuff was going on, being paraded around the streets and stuff. I mean, did you guys enjoy that or was that completely out of your comfort zone? It, some of us enjoyed it more than others. I mean, we, we carried a, a replica H-bomb <laughs> through the streets of Manchester for like yeah. all afternoon <laughs> and we were trying to get arrested. It was just absurd. <laughs> and the police eventually just moved us on. But, you know, we made out that we'd been arrested and everything. And they were crazy stunts. But some of them, yeah, were fun, sure. Uh, and the more rebellious ones amongst us. I mean, Roy was always a very um, shy sort of person, really. And he, he hated all that stuff. And moving on to his time in Electric Light Orchestra, we spoke about the incredible success that that band achieved. Between 72 and 86, you had more top 40 hits in the UK and US than any other band on the planet i mean that's just staggering to think of and it was it was kind of the album el dorado wasn't it that that pushed you firstly into that huge stratospheric point especially in america absolutely we the one thing that we where the move went wrong is that we never went to america mm-hmm. we, we did in 1969 for like a three-week tour but we, we were way past our best um we should have gone you know in 67 like you know, along with, like the Who did, and like and Hendrix went back there and Cream, uh, and I think we'd have, we'd a bit we'd have done well, but anyway, that we'll never know that. <laughs> so we we made a point of concentrating on America, and you're absolutely right. The first gold album was El Dorado, which wasn't a hit in in the UK, and our first major hit in America was a a, a great Jeff Lynne song called "Can't Get It Out of My Head." Mm-hmm. Uh, which again was not a hit in the UK. Uh, but Jeff just got better and better really as a songwriter and producer. And um, it, it, as you've just said, it was a pretty, pretty staggering list of hits there. <laughs> and you mentioned Jeff getting better and better in there. Um, when you look at the, the, the records that, that you guys put out, I mean, Face the Music followed, a new world record, that sort of thing, you're finding yourselves as, as one of the biggest bands on the planet. Did Jeff have um, any pressure or did he struggle with writing, stuff like that, or did it just come quite naturally to him? I, th- I think he was, he was definitely under under pressure to write new songs and, um, and new albums. Uh, and we used to, we based ourselves 
in, in Musicland Studios in Munich, uh, which Queen later later used, uh, and it was Donna Summer's studio too. <laughs> and we just spent weeks and weeks there. But Jeff loved recording, um, and out of the blue, I, I, that was a follow up to New World Record, I think. Yeah. Uh, and the idea, as as far as I know, we were just going to make another album, but. Jeff just couldn't stop writing great songs <laughs> and, and it ended up a double album and probably the best album that we ever made. That's another top interview. Look out for it on episode 40. That is Bev Bevan. And last but not least on today's Great Rock Stories is my interview with current stick star Lawrence Gowan. Larry's been with the band since the 90s, but before that he had huge success in his homeland of Canada. And in this clip, we talk about that success and how he recorded his breakthrough album with a Beatle overseeing the action. Let's start with with, with Gowan, with, with your stuff, your solo stuff, because you had success yeah. in the 80s and in the 90s with your own work. And um, the, the breakthrough album, yeah. the big one that kind of burst you onto the stage, Strange Animal in 1985, that has a British connection as well, doesn't it? Very much so, because it was I, two of my albums were recorded entirely in England. And Strange Animal was recorded at uh, Tittenhurst Park in Ascot. And people might recognize that name. It was the, It's the house where Ringo Starr was living in the 80s. We recorded there in 1984. The album came out in 85. And prior to that, uh, the, the previous owner to Ringo Starr was one of his bandmates, John Lennon, who uh, recorded Imagine wow. in that studio. So it was a phenomenal life experience for me because the Beatles were the reason that I wanted to be a musician, like millions of musicians around the world today. Uh, I remember seeing them at, at the age of seven. You know, I saw them on, uh, there was a show, a, a variety show here in uh, in America called uh, the Ed Sullivan Show. And they came on there. And at about seven years of age, I realized maybe I don't have to be a hockey player after all. There might, there might be another pursuit in life. And uh, so to meet him, pretty much 20 years almost to the day that I, that I it was in February, February 7th, 1984. And to make the album there was fantastic Ringo was living there at the time and he was oh he would occasionally pop into the studio and make some really fantastic wow. encouraging comments uh as we were making the record uh and then Strange Animal I it's funny when we finished recording Strange Animal an excellent producer just the right guy at the right time a guy named Dave Tickle and the band was it was Peter Gabriel's backing band with Tony Levin and Jared Murata David Rhodes and another fellow by the name of Chris Jarrett played with Annabelle Lamb and uh, so the five of us made the album and I, I did go back to Canada with a, a pretty good sense of confidence that someone's going to like this record. Uh, and, uh, it wound up going triple platinum in Canada, but it was, I was on Columbia records on CBS records, but it never really released, had a proper release in the United States. And so I kind of remained a bit of a, an enigma to, to a good number of people in the U S for a number of years, but now I've been here, I'm in Phoenix today. Uh, touring with Sticks for the last 22 years, as you mentioned, and uh, that pretty well sums up my life from beginning to uh, the present. Um, just yeah, touching on that quickly, then I spoke to Lee Aaron uh, not too long ago as well, and she obviously had huge success in Canada. She's Canadian, obviously, and um, she had a bit of success in the in the in the Europe as well. But um, because of record company this that and the others, she never got the break in America. Is that kind of what happened with you? Well, the way that it used to work, right? We're in a completely different universe now in the music business side of things. Because you and I 
right now we, we have a worldwide release of this, of this little Zoom call that we're doing, right? It goes everywhere. Yep. But the way that the music industry, the, the way they built that industry, a good part of it, they were smart business people. They had complete control of the market as to who got exposed into what market and, and, and why. So, for example, I remember going to England in the 80s and, and the Jam were a phenomenal band, a huge band. And, uh, you know, I think they were playing Wembley and stuff. And I'd come back and in America, even if I crossed the border, very few people knew who they were. And I thought this is really odd. And then I began to realize this is part of how the record companies the four majors really controlled the market. And as Canadians, it was very difficult. You needed, a, you needed a really unique, lucky break to suddenly find a path into the United States, And uh, although we share a border. So that's just the way it was back then. And uh, I, I have very few complaints, though, because things worked out. The lovely Lawrence Gowan there. A real fun interview, that one. Please do check it out in full on episode 38 of Vintage Rock Pod. But that's it for Great Rock Stories, Volume 6, then. I really hope you enjoyed all those little tastes of the back catalogue. Please check out those older interviews in full. But don't just stop there as well. If you're a newer listener, then please do go right back. I know it's a long way to scroll, seeing as though I part episodes every single day. But there are some fantastic ones. Like I said, over 20 Rock and Roll Hall of Famers have been interviewed throughout the years on a vintage rock pod. So please do check them out. Also, please check out the Vintage Rock Pod YouTube channel. It's growing all the time. Some nice little bits on there that are very much different to the podcast as well, which includes a daily poll. I put that out and it attracts thousands of votes every single day. Loads of great discussion surrounds those too, so please do not miss it. It's definitely worth subscribing and you get to see the interviews that I do with all these legendary people as well on the videos that I put up on the Vintage Rock Pod channel on YouTube. So please do hit the subscribe button, activate the bell on there so you don't miss any. It is all absolutely free, won't cost you a penny, so please do show your support that way. Well, that's it for me on the big show this week. Then I'll be back tomorrow with another This Day Rocks episode. So until then, take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.